edition of Speaking of Jung. Everything Jung wrote was based on an experience. Jungian psychology isn't about ideas, it's about experiences. This quarantine series is based on my personal experiences with interesting people. Joining us for the 16th episode in this series is author, publisher, and filmmaker Walter Bosley. He is a former counterintelligence agent-turned-researcher who now scrutinizes the classified manned space program. He has been employed by the FBI, is an inactive reserve officer in the United States Air Force, for which he served as a special agent in the AFOSI, that is the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and, following his military service, spent six years as a counter-terrorism operational consultant. After 19 years in national security, he became a licensed private investigator in the state of California, where he also runs his small press publishing company, Lost Continent Library, founded in 2002. He has traveled much of the world, both on the job and off, including trips through Mexico and South America, Central Asia, North Africa, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. A native of Southern California, he attended San Diego State University, where he earned a bachelor's degree in journalism. Since 2007, he has combined his professional investigative experience with his writer's curiosity to go deep into the mysterious territory where synchronicity, UFOs, paranormal phenomena, and occult crimes intersect with history. He is the publisher of classic and gothic adventure, steampunk, science fiction, noir thrillers, and nonfiction. He is an investigator of historical occult mysteries and paranormal-slash-UFO topics, author of pulp fiction novels, and a screenwriter who has appeared on History Channel's Ancient Aliens and Gaia's Beyond Belief, and was featured in the film Mirage Men in which former government agents discussed UFO mythology as a powerful weapon of mass deception and the perfect cover for clandestine technologies and operations. His silent movie, Hell's Bells, was released in 2012 and is now available on the Walter Bosley channel on YouTube. His books include Confessions of a Spooky Mind, the three-part Empire of the Wheel series, the four-part Secret Missions series, Latitude 33, Origin, The Mystery of Ingersoll Lockwood, and Shimmering Light, Lost in an MK Ultra House of Anu, a story of paperclip Nazis, Roswell, UFOs, a lost race, and perception management, and it is the subject of our talk today. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, April 14th, 2021, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Walter. Hello, Laura. Thanks so much for joining us today. I don't even know where to begin. (laughs) 
Thanks for having me. I'm looking forward to wherever it is we go. You will be a speaker at this year's Contact in the Desert, and your talk is titled An Inconvenient Thread, 19th Century Breakaway Legend and America's First Venture into Space. The conference will be held virtually this year, and it runs from June 25th through the 28th, and I will have a link to the conference uh, for people to register. I will have a link to that in the show notes for this episode. And do you know which day you're going to be speaking? Not at this moment. I have to go um, look at what the latest on the schedule is. Yeah, I was Um, wondering if they had even scheduled everything out yet because I looked on their website and didn't see it. Right. Tell us a little bit about the talk. We be doing a slideshow, a one-hour lecture. Well, my participation is like, you know, all the speakers, there will be the main lecture. I will also be giving a workshop and uh, I'll be participating in a panel as well, a multi-speaker panel. And my main discussion, um, I'm hoping the slides work, but yes, there, there will be slides with that, but I'll be presenting my research as um, I've covered in origin, the 19th century emergence of the 20th century breakaway civilizations and the threads that lead to um, certain elements of uh, shimmering light, the book we're going to discuss today. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to, and, and I'm doing that to show um, the, well, the, the historical threads that provide an alternative to the ET hypothesis where Roswell is concerned, for example. But I talk about a lot more than just Roswell in, in that discussion. And uh, the workshop, I will be discussing my own personal UFO experience and, you know, what I think of that and, and how that um, has, I guess you'd say, seasoned or flavored my general view on on ufos since then so i'm looking forward to it i've been to the event a couple of times this will be my first time um, participating in it as a speaker and um, i was disappointed that last year it got canceled of course but you know everybody experienced that with a lot of things so looking forward to it this year yeah i'm looking forward to it too there are a lot of speakers that uh, most people have heard of and and will know of. And um, let's see, Whitley Strieber, who I had on a couple weeks ago, he will be speaking. Ralph Blumenthal from the New York Times, who will be a guest in May, he will be speaking. And uh, there are a few others. I don't have a list in front of me right now because I'm just really focused on you. And you said that you're also going to be on a panel. Do you know what the title of that panel is or what the subject matter is? Not off the top of my head okay. at the moment. <laughs> I wonder, yeah, I wonder how they're going to do the panels um, because I, uh, I keep using the word attended. Conscious Life Expo was in February, and that was done virtually as well. Mm-hmm. And but that was just a single speaker at a time. So mm-hmm. I wonder if they'll do the panel kind of like a Zoom call. Yes, it'll be a multi-screen mm-hmm. Zoom call kind of thing. I'm pretty sure. And um, yeah, it's- I'm I'm sure it will have to do with uh, 
you know, some aspect of, of UFOs, not, and I say that people think, well, that's what contact in the desert, everything is, but not, not every speaker no. there necessarily talks about UFOs. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sure though, the, the panel that I'll be on will, will have something to do with uh, the UFO subject. And people can register for the conference now. Uh, as I said, I'll have a link in the show notes, or you can go to contactinthedesert.com, and they have different packages uh, that that give you act different acts ki- different kinds of access. I have to be careful because I typically don't edit these quarantine editions, so you're uh, hearing me raw here, folks. Okay, so I wanted to ask you. You've written so many books and you and I, I wanted to mention this in the beginning, you and I did, uh, I don't know what to call it. We did a talk together that you recorded and it's available on your YouTube channel about your silent movie, Hell's Bells. And we, I think we talked for about two hours. I can't remember how long that was, but Mm -hmm. it was kind of a Jungian interpretation of your silent film. And Mm -hmm. so uh, there will be a link uh, to that as well in the show notes. But um, what did I want to say? I wanted to ask you uh, about Shimmering Light specifically because I love this book. And uh, I also love your book, Latitude 33, but I don't think that there's enough time to cover both. So maybe uh, you can come back to talk about that. But would you tell us first of all, firstly, why you titled it Shimmering Light? Well, uh, the book towards the end gets into the subject of the legendary Tuatha de Danann, who um, they're figures that date back to ancient Celtic um, fairy lore and the shining ones or the shimmering ones, so to speak. But at the same time, it's a story of me looking at my my dad's story when he was in the Air Force and, you know, he was from West Virginia and he got stationed out in California and uh, he was stationed in California during this time in his life when all this weird stuff, you know, was going on with this Air Force segment of his life. And um, the Eagle song Hotel California, just kind of the beginning of that just reminds me of, you know, it makes me think of a young guy like my dad in the late 50s, you know, driving across the desert to report to his duty station, you know, and and the the lyric up ahead in the distance, I saw a shimmering light. And so I thought, um, wow, that that's really applicable to, you know, I think, you know, this weird experience that my dad had with this whole adventure and um, the fact that because the air force brought him from West Virginia to California, and then he spent the rest of his life, except for a couple of times we tried moving back there, but he spent the rest of his life in Southern California. And, you know, just, just like the song says, you know, you can check out, but you can never leave and it never leaves you. So I, you know, that's where I drew it from. And uh, so this book focuses on your father, his time in the military, and the kind of the theories that you come up with to try to figure out what really happened. And you've written a lot of books. And I've been listening to you do interviews for many years now. So I have a lot of background. And some of the listeners, uh, I'm, I'm sure maybe a, a majority of the speaking of young listeners 
are probably not too familiar with your work. So we need to give a little bit of background and perhaps you can share with us what led to you writing this book. Well, it is a different book in my personal catalog as a writer than the other ones in the sense that it doesn't have the connections that, for instance, the Secret Mission series in some cases has to the Empire of the Wheel series um, with some of the historical connections and such. Um, it, it, but yet it's not entirely a standalone. What's, what's really strange about my personal experience as a writer of nonfiction is that every single one of my nonfiction books um, so far have had um, a couple of threads running through all of them, uh, even when uh, I didn't initially think that they had anything to do with each other, those threads would appear. And they do likewise in Shimmering Light, um, at least one of them, uh, you know, appears. So um, on the surface, superficially, it, it doesn't look like these books would have any connection. And yet, they do have, you know, the, these couple of threads. But what made me want to write Shimmering Light was since 1974, I had heard my dad's story that, you know, that I go into in the book. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I finally decided it, it took me eight years after he passed away, it seemed like, to um, decide to go ahead and just jump in and uh, really look closely at his story look at the um, historical context uh, of when he was in the Air Force and was experiencing these things, and to really uh, determine, you know, if I could, you know, was his story true or, you know, what, what's going on? You know, what, what is the truth? Can I get close to the truth? Mm -hmm. And what I found were some things that, you know, I, I was – kind of basically aware of, but I wasn't um, deeply knowledgeable until I, I dug in. And what I discovered about the MK Ultra program and the military, in particular, the U.S. Air Force during the 1950s, really shed a lot of light on my dad's story. It, 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 um, in other words, there was no way to ignore the historical context of when my dad was in the Air Force and what was going on with MKUltra and what was going on with the U.S. Air Force uh, space program, which a lot of people don't realize existed right. um, in the late 50s before NASA was ever stood up. In fact, the Mercury program, the, the famous one that's depicted in the movie and now the series on Disney, The Right Stuff, um, that started as a U.S. Air Force program, the design of the capsule, the design of the suits, the whole thing was a U.S. Air Force program. And then it was taken over by NASA in uh, October of 58. Mm -hmm. um, so within the context of all that going on with the um, MK Ultra issue and Air Force, the Air Force really um, being in love with the, the stuff, the MK Ultra stuff. My dad was in the aerospace medicine division, that command that was the Air Force command that developed its own MKUltra program. So with all this going on, I began to, um, around the time he was in, I began to see um, how his story could have been true 
and what it, it actually possibly could have been as opposed to what he was telling and what he was legitimately remembering and to to the day he died swore was the truth so what i tried to do was to be very honest and say here's my dad's wild story but here's what it could actually have been so i'm going to jump in here because uh-huh. there might be some listeners who are not familiar with the term mk ultra they were mm-hmm. concerned with the mysteries of of the human mind and and how to control it. So would you tell us uh, briefly what it is and how it factors into this story? MKUltra, um, it, it, it gets talked about a lot on, um, you know, in, in what they call the fringe and it, with conspiracy theorists and such. But MKUltra was very much an historical um, program of uh, uh, psychiatric and, uh, research, psychological and psychiatric research that was conducted initially by the Central Intelligence Agency. And then um, they, in turn, um, brought in military personnel. So the, it was the, secret, right? Yes, it, it was a it was very much a classified program. In 1973, the Church Committee um, uh, had the, the CIA had to report to the Congressional Church Committee. It was called to basically outline and fess up what they had been doing with this program for 20 years or more, and it was something that started um, from what they were learning from the Operation Paperclip German scientists, psychiatrists that had been captured um, or, or co-opted by the United States towards the end of World War II, of course. And um, the things they were doing in uh, the pursuit of understanding the human mind and maybe right, right. And controlling the mind it developed into this MK Ultra program by the 1950s. And yes, it was very much a classified thing that the CIA was doing for a couple of decades. Okay, so I, let's start at the beginning. Um, mm-hmm. To maybe I, I just I'm wondering if some of the listeners are wondering, what are they talking about? So <laughs> maybe we should start with World War Two. Because would you say that that's what this entire story stems from is the events of World War Two and what came out of it? I, I would say so, yes. Um, what a lot of people uh, have as a misperception of um, Operation Paperclip is everyone assumes that it was driven by and, and for the, the development of the atomic bomb. You know, we wanted the German atomic scientists, and so that's why we started Operation Paperclip. But the fact is that it was the aerospace medicine uh, section of the U.S. Army Air Corps and uh, a Colonel Harry Armstrong, who was running that, um, this was what um, started Operation Paperclip. The, these were the guys who who envisioned the idea of bringing these scientists over in this Operation Paperclip. And so around what year is this? We're talking, um, I think it began, they began thinking about it like in, oh gosh, it, it was midway through the war. I, I want to say, 1944, but off the okay. top of my head, yeah. I, I, so I could the be mid forties. Yeah. The, the mid forties, the middle of the war. And, and of course, particularly as the war was ending, but mm-hmm. it was the aerospace medicine guys and Colonel Harry Armstrong and one of his subordinates, uh, um, uh, Otis Benson, 
who I'll mention him in a moment further, um, they got the idea of bringing the German aerospace medicine scientists over so that America could pursue um, uh, putting man in space. And um, it, it, I mean, from the 1920s, Armstrong of the Army Air Force, he, his focus was ultimately to put man in space. And the German scientists, of course, they were devoted to that as well. And he knew these guys before the war. Did you say so back comes, in the 20s? Yeah, it dates back to the 1920s, the origins of this idea, mm-hmm. you know, of, and, and it all started with it really started with aerospace medicine, because if you're going to put people in space, they've got to stay alive. Right. So, so aerospace medicine was part of the U.S. military. Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. From 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 when they first started flying the biplanes, they they started, you know, um, studying the effects of flight on human physiology. That's very key here. I want to make a point that that is key to this story. Yes. What you just said. Mm-hmm. Human physiology, man in flight, human beings flying up in the air, in our atmosphere, outside of our atmosphere, that's very key here. How it affects the human body and the human mind. Yes, very, very much so. And, and they were just as interested in how it would affect the human mind, as certainly as the body. So the the Operation Paperclip was conceived to get these German aerospace uh, medicine scientists over here in a pursuit of you know, putting ultimately putting people in space. And one of the side products was what they learned um, for high altitude flight subsequent to that. So you, you had the high altitude bombers. I think the B-29 Super Fortress was one of the first ones, if not the first one. And, you know, during the Cold War, you had the high altitude bombers. Well, that wasn't the objective of these aerospace medicine guys. The objective all along was to go out into outer space and and the high altitude um, technology regarding life support and physiology. That was just kind of what they learned along the way to put man in space. Mm -hmm. So Otis Benson, who I mentioned before, he was very much a proponent of putting man in space dating back to the war years. So in the 1950s, he becomes the um, commander of the aerospace medicine division of the U.S. Air Force. And that's during the era that my dad was in the Air Force. So um, here you have Otis Benson, who's all about putting people in space. And uh, during these years, um, the Air Force is establishing and pursuing just that putting man in space and they conceive and create and and start the Mercury, what we know as the Mercury space program, manned space program. So the Air Force was um, early on in the 50s uh, pursuing this. But, uh, you know, there's the question of we go from the end of the war to the 50s. What happened in between there? Mm -hmm. Well, as I talk about in the book and present in the book, we have this legendary story um, about what happened in New Mexico at Roswell in 1947. Um, my personal view, which I, I lay out in the book, um, 
is that Roswell can be explained by these very things I'm talking about. You know, d- during the the war years, there's this interest in putting man in space. The war ends, and we have all these Operation Paperclip German scientists, many of whom are aerospace medicine scientists, plus the rocket engineers and the aerospace engineers. And here they are in 1947, a couple of years after the war ends. Mm-hmm. Here they are in New Mexico with their American counterparts at at classified location with all the money that, you know, thrown at them at the time that they could want. They're working in secret. Um, It's my view. And I suggest this in the book. I don't know this for sure, but it's my view that whatever really happened with this Roswell mystery, this New Mexico mystery in 1947 had to do with, in my opinion, the first American um, attempt at putting man in space and mm -hmm. i was just gonna say that uh the first flight of an airplane by the wright brothers was in what the early 1900s right 1903 1903 and it wasn't long after that that we wanted to put men into space oh (laughs) there were people thinking about that yeah, but during that time as as well as before that time, um, you know, you you had people thinking about this for a, a, a very long time, um, and uh, especially we fly. Yeah, well, uh, con- the controlled flight, uh, and that was popularized, um, you know, through the through the airplane, and uh, of, of course, as that developed uh, wildly between 1903 excuse me and the 1920s this encouraged the manned space enthusiasts and yes by the 1920s they were seriously these guys seriously thinking on this and and pursuing research and then the manhattan project that was this secret project in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which mm-hmm. is not near Roswell. Uh, I've been there. It's kind of between between Santa Fe and Taos, sort of. Um, mm-hmm. That that project was in the '40s, right? Yes, and that was for to develop the the bomb to develop the, the bomb. bomb. And then I'm now piecing this together as far as your theory as to what really happened uh, in Roswell in 1947 that Mm -hmm. was allegedly a crash of a flying saucer. So how do we, how do we get there? What's the next step in this story? Well, how I think it happened was you had these guys in the right place at the right time with all the resources. So, and this is what they had dreamed, been dreaming of doing for a couple of decades or more of their lives. So, of course, they're going to try it. Now, why would it remain so secret? Why would such a tight lid be put over it? Because we were in the early years of that Cold War. Okay. And whatever might have happened in this scenario that I present with this crash, um, it would, it, it might have been successful enough up until the point, you know, that it crashed that what they learned was a, they could do it and B they could keep people alive at very high altitudes, you know, you name it or up and maybe they just put them in orbit. I don't know. 
Um, but uh, they learned enough that I think that's what encouraged the Army uh, Air Force. And then very subsequently after that, in the next year, the Air Force, the U.S. Air Force, to pursue a space program. However, because it was the Cold War, they in no way wanted to tip off, of course, to the Soviets that they were even trying this so they, it, to, to whatever degree of success they might have had. Because, you know, the Soviets had their own paperclip guys that were, you know, pursuing much the, the same things, of course. So I, personally, I, it, it's my opinion that that would explain the secrecy um, to this day, because that would have led into a classified military manned space program, which I have suspected has been in existence. People hear that and they think, oh, some secret thing like Star Trek. And no, that that would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But um, when the Air Force passed Mercury off to NASA, there's no indication that the Air Force stopped its own pursuit of space operations, manned space operations. I suggest that it simply went classified. I think that the Air Force uh, manned space technology would have been pretty much parallel to what we saw NASA doing. It would have been the uses and the application of it that would have been the big secret thing. And the fact that they were doing it, they would want to keep classified. But essentially, it would be a, you know, kind of a parallel technology uh, with NASA up until, in my opinion, um, sometime in the probably mid to late 1970s, I would say then that the Air Force, probably their technology would have pulled ahead a little bit, but we're not talking some fantastical, you know, faster than light right. type ships. We're talking very, you know, um, uh, concepts that, you know, we could understand as, as aerospace technology, just a little more advanced than you know, um, what we're aware of, that kind of thing. So because this was all happening during the years of the Cold War, that, in my opinion, would explain such a tight lid on it, okay, is because it was a Cold War development. Um, so when you say Cold War, are you talking right after World War II? Oh, yeah, right after World War okay, II, right okay. up until when the uh, wall and the, the coup happened in the Soviet Union and the wall came down in the early 90s, 91 or whenever that was. So, yeah, that, that right. So Cold getting War. Cold War, getting back to Project Mercury, when I was at Cape Canaveral at the Kennedy Space Center the last time, I mm -hmm. took the – they have these bus tours and they have a longer one that's more mm -hmm. private and takes you back into – some of the the remote areas, some of the the old launch pads, and it it was very interesting because these. So I I took that tour and these Mercury rockets. So the Mercury program was to launch one man was a one man capsule. Yes. Gemini was two men, mm -hmm. and Apollo is three. So Merc the Mercury uh, rockets to me, looks so small. You know, I love the Saturn V, the largest right. rocket ever built. But the Mercury rockets, those things I found out on this historic space tour, which I highly recommend if anybody has the chance to visit Kennedy Space Center, Cape Canaveral. It is fascinating and totally worth the time and the money uh, to do. 
so these were, were now, now the, wait a minute, they were not intercontinental ballistic missiles yet. They were missiles that were converted mm-hmm. to hold a, a human being in the nose cone, basically. Mm-hmm. Yes. So you're saying that, well, what are you saying? That the, that's a, if if anybody's lost, I'm trying to piece it together here where we're going with this. Well, and, here's mm-hmm. yeah, here here's where we have to um, go out on the limb of speculation. You have to look at what we know was being developed and pursued at the time, and look for clues of a development, an extent of development that might have remained classified and and in the uh what we call the x plane series we have that potential okay um at the same time that rockets indeed and missiles were being developed you have the air force pursuing you know these manned craft that are you know controlled flight and they're essentially space plane the air force um, you know, at the same time that rockets and missiles were being developed, um, the Air Force was pursuing um, the this series of X planes, you know, the X one, uh, you know, on up to the X fifteen, and this was a development of a controlled flight, you know, aircraft slash spacecraft. This led to things like the SR-71 and then um, ultimately the space shuttle. This this pursuit led to both of these developments. And, you know, it, it's curious, you know, they're pursuing this and, and there's the obvious reasons they're pursuing it. But in the Roswell UFO lore, um, some of the witnesses have, dis, you know, had described um the Roswell craft that, uh, you know, crashed as uh, being either shaped like a manta ray or, or, you know, this winged thing, this, this short stubby or strange winged thing, strange being not like the other aircraft of the day. But when you look at the X plane development that the air force is known historically to have been doing, you look at some of those uh, craft and they look very much like something that would be described as a stingray or a manta ray or, or you know, the strange deltoid shape, because people back in the late 40s, you know, they're used to airplanes, aircraft looking a certain way. And, you know, something like that would would have looked otherworldly to them. Um, so when you look at the historical context, what it appears to me is indeed um, whatever the Roswell craft was um, might have been the first so-called of the X-Plane series. Okay. And, um, you know, because it was the Cold War, that's why there was such a tight lid put on this. And this would also explain mm-hmm. when people ask, well, how come there weren't other rocket launches that, you know, we can point to, you know, historically, the public knows about all the rocket launches or at the time, you know, we would have known if if the Air Force was launching a rocket with people on it. Well, if they weren't putting people in space 
on rockets, but they were putting people in space with these X craft, you know, secretly, then, you know, nobody would have known about that because right. that kind of thing could have taken off at night, you know, and um, it, it would it would cover up manned uh, space flights. So World War II ends in 1945. Uh, Project Mercury didn't start till 1958. So, and that Project Mercury was part of NASA because NASA was formed in 1958 and that was public. And I always wonder, yes, this is what we're being told, but there's got to be a lot of stuff we're not being told. And I'm mm -hmm. fine with that. That's part of national defense. I'm fine with that. But there's this big gap between the end of World War II and the beginning of the official space program to, we wanted to put a man in space, right? The Russians beat us. They were the first to put a man in space. Okay. So my question, I've been involved in the UFO community since the 1980s. What always, what I always wondered about is why were there crashes of alleged UFOs only in that brief period of time, right? So Roswell wasn't the only alleged crash in New Mexico. There were supposedly other crashed UFOs Correct. in New Mexico. Yes. There was Aztec, Socorro, mm -hmm. and what's, what others? I think those are the ones. Those are the main ones. Okay. That we know about. Yeah. That we know about. Why only in 1947? Why only in New Mexico? If UFOs have been visiting this planet for millennia, mm -hmm. why are those the, why did they only crash in 1947? And why did they only crash in New Mexico? It never made sense to me. But your story does. Well, it, it's, um, it, it fits the historical context, you know, um, when you, and this is, this is what the reason I conclude this is, is I, I think this is what I found by digging into that historical context, by, by knowing, um, from personal experience, how the air force works, how these things, you know, work in general, particularly classified programs and, and pursuits. It, it, it's the one possibility that makes the most sense to me within the context of history and what you just laid out. Isn't it interesting that these mm -hmm. crashes are in New Mexico where these installations and these specialists and experts are located? Isn't it interesting that um, there appears to be this gap between the end of the war and, and you know, when Yuri Gagarin goes up and then and NASA starts you know, putting uh, Americans in space. Are we to believe that nothing was being pursued, you know, as far as putting putting people in space during those years? We know for a fact, um, you can go on the Air Force, hist you know, history website, and you can see that the Air Force space program was being developed, you know, in the, in the mid to late 50s, the, what we know, what we know publicly, and how Mercury indeed started as a U.S. Air Force program. So are we to believe that they were doing nothing before, you know, the late 50s, that for 10 years, nothing was attempted, um, just suddenly they decided to stand this up and do it? I find that hard to believe. Um, when you look at the historical context when you know how you know the air force works and um it it makes the most sense to me 
And it makes sense to me why um, it would be a secret, why they would almost rather people go ahead and think of, you know, Roswell being, you know, a, a craft from another world. Yeah, let's talk about that because it is larger than life there in I've never been to Roswell, New Mexico. I never mm-hmm. wanted to. It seemed kind of hokey. There's a museum there. It just kind of mm-hmm. looked tacky and this alleged crash wasn't even I mean there's a town of Roswell. Actually, I have a good friend who was happened to be born there. She lives in Santa Fe now, but she was born mm-hmm. in Roswell and uh this crash happened way out in a field way outside of Roswell. That's just the closest town, but now I forgot what I was going to say. <laughs> <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I, I, I was going to add too that, you know, when my dad started telling this story uh, in 1974 was when he first told me and my sisters. And, uh, you know, that was six years before the first book on Roswell came out. And, and, and what story is that? Because I don't know if the listeners, oh. yeah, if the listeners know what your dad's story was. They probably don't. (laughs) Um, Basically, my dad was in the, he he was a physiological training specialist. He ran pilots through altitude chambers. He uh, trained pilots on using their, their oxygen mass life support systems for high altitude flights. And uh, his unit at George Air Force Base here in Southern California, um, also was involved in the ground tests for the Mercury program uh, space suits. Okay. Uh, And uh, because of this, he had a a pretty high clearance, security clearance. And when he went back to, uh, from California to Gunter Air Force Base in Montgomery, Alabama for advanced training to become a supervisory uh, specialist, it was during that training, he, this, was his, this is where his story starts mm-hmm. that he would tell, that uh, he and a couple of the other guys he was there with um, were instructed that they had to go over, take a flight over to Texas um, to, uh, I think it was, it was either Randolph or Kelly Air Force Base, and uh, to continue to get a very special element of their training for this supervisory aspect of their jobs. And, uh, you know, one of my dad's additional duties, and I have the document to show this, and it's in the book, um, he was on a, uh, on, on a, for lack of a better term, I, I don't have it sitting right in front of me, but it, what we call a crash retrieval team. Mm-hmm. Now, um, th- this is for when there were, you know, the, the aircraft, the Air Force aircraft would crash. They'd have to have people go out there and, you know, retrieve the debris and mm-hmm. such human remains in some cases. So he was on the retrieval team. That was one of his duties at George air force base here in California. So um, they're flying from Gunter on the way to Texas and the plane gets diverted. An intelligence officer comes out of the forward cabin of this, this transport aircraft and explains to them that they're not going to Texas, that they're actually going to Wright Patterson in Ohio. And according to my dad, after arrival at Wright Patterson, they get briefed in on something that crashed uh, in New Mexico in 1947. And um, what my dad from 1974 on to when he died in 2008, what my dad always said that he was told 
is that these were people from another civilization that shares this planet with us, but they, they remain hidden and they spend, you know, they're where they're at is in subterranean um, spaces. And he says they were shown the uh, bodies of the, uh, the, the people that were retrieved um, in the 47 crash and such. And they were told that another crash had happened and that they were being sent to Arizona um, because this time there is reason to believe that the pilot of this other civilization's craft was still alive, but lost here up on the surface. And so they were sent to Arizona, according to my dad, to be part of the rescue operation. And uh, they get out to Arizona, which he would only describe as somewhere east of Winslow and um, allegedly has an encounter in this subterranean cavern with people who live down there and the guy he's with gets killed. And that's where the story would end. And my dad would get very emotional at, at that point. And that's where the story would end. And um, involved in this were, you know, interesting details. Um, a man named Wilson, um, who I subsequently learned from, a superior officer in my intelligence counterintelligence career was a real guy and was running the, the pr project. My dad was sent to Arizona to work on. And um, uh, I was encouraged by this individual to get my dad to talk about it more. But as you can, as you can understand, this sounds like just another crazy story in uh, the, the fringe world of UFO conspiracy theory. Well, I have a couple questions. Was your dad allowed to tell you this story? Well, here's the thing. Uh, subsequent, and I go into this in the book, um, you know, technically he, you know, you're not supposed to talk about projects you worked on, but and, and that was an issue I had. It's like, okay, why is he telling me this story? You know, particularly when I started my own career and understood what you're not supposed to do and such. And I'm being encouraged to get him to talk about it more. And I'm being told that he indeed was in Arizona. It was an underground uh, facility operation going on. There was this Wilson individual running it, a civilian um, so, you know, that's part of my, what's going on here. And now a part of me, you know, probably the kid wants to believe in this story of this underground world and civilization and this hidden, you know, group that flies these amazing weird things and such. But the other side of me is an adult who, you know, was a, was a federal agent as a military officer, you know, has been an investigator understands that, um, you know, you got to get to the truth of things, no matter what you want to think they are or want to believe they are. And, um, as I dug into this, uh, what I found was going on with the MK ultra program within the command of the air force that my father was in, um, readily explained, uh, both why he was talking about it, uh, you know, several years later and what he believed had happened because in MK ultra, uh, they were developing the laying of false narratives on the human psyche on memory. 
um, I think, um, in my dad's case, uh, which was perfectly in line with why the CIA reported to Congress why they were pursuing this. They wanted to better secure classified operations. So they were seeking a way to lay false narratives in the human psyche so that people that were involved in these classified operations would uh, not remember, you know, being involved with them. And if, if they did start to remember anything, they would remember the false narrative. So then if the, um, the, the, the laying of this through hypnosis and, and drugs, by the way, through hypnosis and pharmaceuticals, um, the laying of this false narrative, if anything started to emerge and they started talking about anything, it would be the false narrative that they would talk about. So do and you this, think that this was the false narrative? I think very. I, it's very possible within the historical context of all this, it's very possible that the wilder uh, story my dad told um, it is the false one. It is a false narrative, and because, it makes sense. Yeah, my it, other question, I just don't want to let this go. I'm sorry mm-hmm. to, to, to jump in here, but huh? was there anyone else who told the same story your father told, or was he the only one with this version of what happened? Uh, you, you, you have a guy named Phil Schneider who in the 80s emerged with a similar story um, who uh, claimed that uh, as a contract specialist, whatever it was he was doing, I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, that um, he went into the underground and encountered extraterrestrials and there was a shootout and, you know, people were killed. And this just this wild story now subsequent to his run in ufology of about a decade, um, he Phil Schneider ultimately committed suicide and and FBI documents have since emerged that, um, you know, they saw him as someone who had psychiatric problems. Now, I don't know of any um, uh, connection Schneider would have had to anything my dad did because my dad's okay. time was in the in the late 50s. But it's, it's a similar story because in my dad's story, when they encountered the underground people, they're, they startled each other. And the guy my dad was with was, a, you know, according to my dad's story, killed by a device that one of these underground people were holding. So you have this recurring theme of, you know, in the underground in a shootout and stuff. And what does that tell me within the context of what we're talking about? It tells me that this might be a com- common um, nar- false narrative that you know, gets laid into the uh, subconscious of individuals. Yeah, but there's just an N of two. So we only have two people ever coming forward with this story. So there's no one else that was with your father or corroborated his story? Um, The only... The only thing I ever got towards any corroboration was, um, like I said, an individual who was senior to me during my career mm-hmm. who told me that uh, the basics of it, that, yep, my dad was told what happened at Roswell. Yes, um, he was out in Arizona. It was an underground facility and um, that I was encouraged to get him to talk more about it. Um, okay, so... Yeah. Your father eventually told you this story, and what 
what I was curious about is uh, he had a security clearance, right? Yes. And so he knew what he could and could not tell you. Yes. And he would, I could tell even he was holding back, you know, now, and, and remember what I wanted to say earlier was he start. he tells me this story, my sisters and I, the story for the first time starting in 1974. Well, mm-hmm. that is 50, uh, about 15 or 16 years after I think the narrative was laid into his uh, subconscious. So it took about, you know, that long for it to start breaking down to where he started talking. And of course, you know, theoretically, you know, within this hypothesis, he's telling, he's starting to tell the false narrative. And, um, you know, so that, that makes sense to me within the context of MK ultra technology and development and what they were pursuing and, and probably achieved. Okay, so before yeah, before we get into the psychological aspect of this and and mm-hmm. talk more about MK Ultra, I mm-hmm. still want to make sure I fully understand that your father mm-hmm. had a security clearance. Yes. He was on this mission which you go through in the book. I mean, you start off chapter 1, you talk about the zipper, chapter 2, you you verify the fact that he was indeed in the military and where he was stationed. Yes. You talk about Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, um, the tube that stings like cactus needles, which was mm-hmm. a device that was allegedly used by the underground people um, yeah. that killed your father's partner there, a fellow yeah. Air Force guy, right? Uh-huh. Right. And, and according just, to the story. yeah. According to the story. So- uh, what happens uh, when, and I, this must just be me, what happens when I read a book and then I talk to somebody on this podcast about the book, I can't remember what we talked about versus what I read. So I don't know if the audience is lost. So do you know what I mean? So I want to make sure that um, we that you tell us about these underground people. These look like human beings, right? Yes. According to my dad, what he, uh, according to his story, what he learned about them was that they had gone underground thousands of years ago when there was a natural cataclysm on the surface of the planet. This is stuff that's right out of um, both uh pulp fiction of the early 20th century, but also has become very popular in um, the, 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 you know, the UFO fringe uh, culture and the new age and and things like that. Now here's, here's what's interesting about that. There was a gentleman, one of the doctors involved with MK ultra named Sidney Gottlieb. And he was very much interested in folklore and, and what we would call new age concepts and ideas. He was very much involved in with uh, Dr. Ewan Cameron in, in developing this uh, ability to lay false narratives in people's subconscious. And he was one of the ones active during, you know, the time my dad was in the Air Force. Gottlieb was in the CIA MKUltra program. So here you have one of the MKUltra scientists, okay? Yeah. Um, who is already interested in this kind of stuff. So is Gottlieb where this came from? Was Gottlieb just taking things that were from 
pulp fiction of the early 20th century and or, or things that were you know popular in in new age circles and was he using that to create the false narrative you know that was for example laid into my father's mind if if i'm right about this well then i always and, wonder well where did that come from where did the idea for the pulp novels come from and then if this is the false narrative what is the real narrative Oh, well, I, I do attempt to offer uh, an hypothesis there. It, it goes back to what I said with, you know, the United States Air Force was developing a, a manned space program. And if it was a classified manned space program, uh, as I think it was, um, I, I think it's very possible that my, my dad, because he was involved with those things, was sent out to Arizona to be involved with the establishment, foundation, standing up, what have you, of some facility relative to the, a classified manned space program of the Air Force. And because of the Cold War, because this was the, the most advanced thing we would have been doing and this would have, this would have been the biggest secret, I think... I, it suggests to me that the Air Force was probably, um, in all good conscience, not realizing, you know, years later, the bad things that could happen with MKUltra. In all good conscience, I think what the Air Force was possibly doing was applying MKUltra techniques to their personnel, and the personnel were willing to do it. You know, in other words, they would have been briefed ahead of time. This is what we're going to do. And it'll help. Uh, it'll help uh, operational security. You won't be you won't remember and you won't talk about it. So it'll keep the whole operation more secure. Yeah, this, this, is, this is my. Yeah, this was my hypothesis. So I think that that would be um, one of the reasons that they would have done this, lay this false narrative. in. now another reason they could have done it would be if something went wrong. And um, they, they needed to just make sure that person didn't remember, you know, being involved. And uh, I was told by this individual who's a superior officer to me um, during my career that uh, something had happened. And uh, the individual running the program, Wilson, um, ended up uh, relieving my dad and a couple of others off of this project in Arizona. So because? It, it, I don't know. Mm -hmm. all, all I know is that it was some some type of uh, uh, alleged screw up or something, and okay. they were booted off the project. And that, to me, coming from my operational perspective, could be a reason why they would apply MK Ultra. You know, if you're no longer going to be part of the project, they don't want you remembering what you saw and what you were briefed in. Because remember, at the time, this would have been the biggest, deepest secret. So therefore, they would have wanted to do anything to keep it a secret, biggest, even, le even letting people believe that a crash was something from another world mm -hmm. in order to keep the very terrestrial down to earth real explanation secret. And the real explanation being that this was the United States' attempt to put a man into space. In my opinion, yeah. That's opinion, that's that's my hypothesis. Yeah. In the nineteen forties, well mm -hmm. before we actually did in the nineteen fifties. So yeah. it was okay. held secret. And I'd like to talk a little bit about secrecy because so many people in our community, the UFO community, are angry about the secrecy. And when I hear that something was being kept secret, I don't, I'm not offended 
as a United States citizen. I think it's for national security reasons. And I'm always curious as to why my fellow American doesn't consider the importance of national security. It's because the society that we have increasingly um, uh, molded for ourselves, where we want we want what we want, and we want it right now, and we demand it, and we insist that we get it. And so, you know, it's just like with this whole disclosure movement, uh, you know, they want it, they want it now. And, you know, it's if you stomp your feet and yell loud enough, then, you know, um, mommy or daddy will give you the lollipop. And that's what we have become greatly. And uh, it's it's actually an embarrassment. But um, that's why uh, I think people are so um, emotional about it. And then you have the, the other thing going on psychologically in the UFO world. And that is the, um, the, almost the, the near deification of the extraterrestrial mm-hmm. and, um, you know, people uh, being so emotionally attached to this. It, it, it has become the, a substitute, a religious substitute yes. for religion. Yeah. And people think that they're so technologically advanced and they're loving that and not considering um, the other aspects of it. So chapter 11 is where you start discussing uh, Air Force space scientists studying psychology and the Air Force's interest in mind control programs. You even mentioned Basel, Switzerland, uh, and an LSD trip. And Jung's mother was from Basel, and he attended the University of Basel. So you mentioning Basel in Chapter 11 really caught my eye. And uh, you mentioned LSD and um, how the Air Force went off in its own direction with a program uh, that was parallel to what the CIA was doing with hypnosis and hallucinogens. So let's talk about what, how that, how that factors into this story. Well, it really goes back to um, when I referenced uh, Sidney Gottlieb and um, uh, you and Cameron and why they would have done something like this. Originally, what CIA MK Ultra was also pursuing was to develop a mind control assassin. That's not science fiction. They were really trying to do this. This got uncovered in 1973 by the church committee and, and a couple of uh, inside uh, actual former CIA employees that wrote about this that revealed it and um, they were attempting to develop and use the the false narrative uh, tool um, to they would take an assassin and um, this assassin would be going about their his or her normal life 
And with a phone call, like in the film Manchurian Candidate, yeah. uh, or someone walking up to them, a word, a keyword would activate them as the trained assassin. They would get their assignment, their target, they would go on their assignment. And after the assignment was over, another keyword would flip that switch. And the idea was they would not remember anything about having gone on the assignment or the operation. And that way, you know, the CIA could have total 100% operational security. This is what they were pursuing. The, and, they were pursuing the ability to do that. Yes. Oh, actively, very actively. And um, a, a side product would be, of course, well, anybody working in a classified program, if it was deeply classified enough and they really wanted to ensure security, this idea of the false narrative could be laid in there. And this is one of the things that the Air Force aerospace medicine guys liked. And so, um, but but my what I'm wondering is how was this developed in the first place? Who were the people who figured out how to psychiatrists, implant? right? So, so that, yeah, psychiatrists and in other you know medical scientists, and it started with the Germans and the Germans that they captured, and then it it or you know brought over with Operation Paperclip, the Paperclip, and then, okay. Yeah, and then they just started pursuing this using um, – it, it really started with um, – a, a lot of it was they were told by Operation Paperclip Germans that, you know, the Germans that the Russians had were experts in this, and they were probably pursuing this as well. So, um, it, the, the concern was is that mind control techniques would be used on our downed pilots in the early years of the Cold War. Mm -hmm. So it started with a pursuit working with the German psychiatrist. It started as a pursuit to uh, try to figure out maybe, you know, the Russians or, you know, ultimately the Chinese, but um, what they would be applying to our downed pilots um, who were captured, what they would be doing to them psychologically and in the pursuit of trying to figure that out, our guys just decided, well, let's go ahead and develop some of this stuff on our own, you know, um, uh, not, not, not aggressively. It, it was an aggressive pursuit, but proactively, you know, let's, let's just go ahead. And that's really how the MK Ultra thing started. And they, you know, they consulted with the um, European, uh, I mentioned him in the book, you mentioned Switzerland there, but the, 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 the gentleman who was in the early days of the LSD development, you know, the guys who were just experimenting with the pharmaceuticals, the hallucinogenics and stuff. And, and just by experimenting and, and playing games with that stuff, that they were learning what could be done. And that's how it, you know, developed through the 50s. Uh, they got into the aerosol LSD where the, you know, they host a party at one of their undercover apartments in San Francisco mm -hmm. and they spray LSD <sighs> from an aerosol can and just to watch these people to see how they react to it. Um, so that th this is how th it was all trial and error. Yeah. They were doing all sorts of things and it was through trial and error. And then the work th um, with hypnosis uh, this is where Dr. Ewan Cameron, you know, comes okay. in and got a combination of hypnosis and pharmaceuticals was how um, they discovered what they discovered and developed what they did. But as so, you said, this can break down over time. Hypnosis, definitely the. Yeah. Um, now, I don't know that much about LSD. And from what I understand, there's some people who don't recover from it, that it 
completely sure. breaks them. Yeah. So what then came of this? I mean, what, what came after that? <laughs> Who knows? In 1973, the CIA had to come clean before Congress. And, you know, the assumption has been that they quit fooling with this stuff, but the Air Force did not have to come clean with whatever it was. And the, the Air Force went its own way with what they learned about MKUltra in the 50s. OK, we've never seen the Air Force uh, sit before Congress and tell the history of what they've done with MK Ultra. Um, you know, so we don't know. We have these little hints that are, you know, talked about in, yes, that kind of what people consider fringy, you know, that conspiracy theory world. And I have no doubt that, uh, you know, there, there are, there's facts, you know, bubbling up to the surface um, in the, uh, the, the midst of the fantasy, you know, that gets talked about. You got you to gotta know how to carefully uh, recognize the facts and, and you could probably piece together how far it's been taken, but uh, we honestly don't know. Um, you know, one of the things that they were trying to, they were having a hard time cracking in the 50s was how do they have a self-perpetuating um, reactivation of the hip hypnotic suppression, okay? And they wanted to come up with something that it would just reactivate itself. And according to what you read about the CIA MKUltra stories, they never were able to crack that. However, I was told by this individual when I was on active duty mm -hmm. is that how they did it with my dad was they that the Air Force keyed it to the phases of the moon. And other, I was told that, you know, on the first night of the full moon, um, it would reactivate in my dad's subconscious, okay. the suppression. Okay. And think about it. The moon's up in the sky, you know, every night you're, you're going to see it. So as soon as he would see that full moon, it would be suppressed again, but over time, indeed, that will break down and think about it. It was 50, about 15, 16 years after they would have applied this. If I'm right. And, and based on what I was told, Okay, that would, would have been almost 16 years after they applied this to my dad that he starts, you know, talking about this. And what are we hearing? Well, we're hearing this wild story that I have reason to suspect is the false narrative that they laid in there. So I wonder if he would have to actually physically see the moon in order for this to take effect because you know we're all affected by the moon whether we sure. see it or not so right. i'm wondering if he would actually have to look at it i you know i my understanding the way it was presented to me was that that was primarily how it worked but it, it, think about it he was in the aerospace medical division that they were on the cutting edge of understanding human physiology mm -hmm. so i'm sure um guys like you and cameron and gottlieb and the other mk ultra people and whoever the air force you know had running their program i'm sure they understood understood human physiology to an extent right. that it probably could uh because what if, what if there's cloud coverage you know and you, you don't really see you know the big glowing moon up there you're right it could be keyed to how it affects you know our bodies um that, that's that's a very good question um but that's what i was told is that it was the moon the moon and so now if this is a false narrative Mm -hmm. the, the story of the underground people. Right. Um, 
do you not believe, do you believe or not believe that there is a breakaway civilization or is the breakaway civilization different from this underground civilization? That's different. That's, that's different. The, um, and I've stopped, uh, since coming out with that book and in recent years, I've started calling it, I've started using the word group because civilization is a big word. And, and in, when people hear that, it implies something that this breakaway is not, in my opinion. Um, you're talking about a group that has a sufficient um, means of self-sustenance in aspects of our civilization, meaning they have enough money, they have enough material resources where they can kind of do their own thing and not really participate as we do in our civilization. And yet at the same time, they're here with us. You know, these are people that, you know, they, they, they live here on earth and you, you, you might be able to point to their house, but you know, they're aware of and in possession of enough resources and that they have their, their own technology to an extent, or they're involved with developing their own secret technology um, outside okay. of the okay. government. That's a that whole other of. story. It, it's more like the Ayn Rand um, okay. Atlas shrugged uh, Galt's Gulch kind of thing, if that makes sense. Okay. Um, we're not going to go there today. So right. we're going to stick with your dad's sure. story and, uh -huh. and where this goes. Um, now, toward the end of his life, mm -hmm. he, well, the last year of his life, you say yeah. he was dying. And yeah, he was, he was assaulted in his home by a former employee and uh, severely injured. He was beaten while he was sleeping. And, um, and so it, over a period of about 11 months, he, you know, he died 11 months later. And he spent that last 11 months of his life in the hospitals. In the hospital. And you visited him frequently. Oh yeah. And, yeah. and he, he talked to you and he told you things. He told me more, um, than he ever had about, you know, um, the underground stuff. What and, was he uh, suffering from that last year of his life when he was in the hospital? Could he not? Oh, a head not? injury, mm -hmm. a severe head injury. Okay. The first 45 days after the assault, he was unconscious. He was in a coma and then um, probably uh, then he came out of that and uh, probably the last couple of months of his life, several months after that, he began to really, you know, we really couldn't communicate with him clearly, but he had those several months in between the coma and before that breakdown started happening that, uh, you know, we were able to talk with him and he seemed, you know, not a hundred percent. You know, because he'd, he'd been severely beaten. Um, but uh, that's and, and that's something that, you know, I have to consider, you know, the, the man had a severe head injury. And, you know, he's uh, where is this stuff coming from that he's right. talking about? You know, is this more, you know, this is probably more of the false narrative that was laid in there. But um, he had his memory intact, his long term memory, his short term memory. He yeah. Yeah. He knew who he was. He knew who. To... Yeah. Yeah. He knew who we were. Um, he, uh, you know, um, that it, it it's not that he lost who he was or anything, but he was telling me more well, about you share uh, with us the oh anything additional that he that he sure he, yeah part of this narrative 
um, was that had to do with this little aircraft, you know, called the zipper Mm -hmm. that he called the zipper. And he said he was telling me there was this small one man aircraft that had been uh, designed by the Air Force and in a technology exchange or, or assistance or, or whatever, um, this underground civilization was going to, I, I, we provided them, according to my dad's story, with this, these little aircraft, and um, they were providing us with te- allegedly telling us more about their, their civilization and such. But, you know, on, on the face of it, you have to say, okay, well, if he had his own, if they had their own craft and this is what crashed, was it not more advanced than what our air force had that, that this, this zipper craft would have been valuable to them. And, you know, so was this a disconnect? Is this um, evidence of this being a false narrative? Because, Part of laying a false narrative, remember, would be to make something wild enough so it would not be believed. And why would they do that? They would do that so that as time went on and real classified facts Mm -hmm. were bubbling up with the false narrative, the false narrative was just weird and wild enough that the idea is that people hearing it would not even believe the real facts because it was laced with the crazy story, right? Well, where would would these underground people be going with aircraft? Flying them in vast subterranean spaces that my dad, you know, you know, in this last year of his life was saying that, uh, you know, they were flying these things in to get to get around quick underground. Yeah. And, and that there's such vast open spaces under the surface of the earth. This is all stuff that's been, like I said, it goes back to early 20th century uh, fantasy in, in science fiction. And um, it has been embraced by the new age and, and ufology culture communities. And, um, you know, it's the kind of stuff that Gottlieb, you know, was into, you know, as a hobby. So it's not surprising that if I'm right about this being a false narrative, it's not surprising at all that this is the nature of the stuff that would have been put in the false narrative. The alternative is that it's true and real. And well, that's another discussion. You know? But and, I'm wondering yeah. where, if it was them, if it, if, if it, if we stayed with this, if mm-hmm. it was them that crashed at Roswell, where were they going? Uh, I, who knows? That's something that's never, you know, the ET people say, well, it was an ET craft coming here to observe and, mm-hmm. you know, check out Earth. But if it was not an ET craft, it was if it was some other hidden civilization, maybe they were going into space. Maybe they were just checking out what was going on on the surface. I don't know. That's that's something I was never, you know, told by my dad. Um, but you I'm going to put you on the spot right okay. now okay and if <laughs> okay. you want me to edit this out i will okay you have been made privy to information that you're not allowed to talk about so that has to influence your opinions and how you see everything else because you know more so i don't know i i feel like i can't even ask you anything because <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead and ask. Well, what what do you think happened at Roswell? And now, when you answer me, I don't know if that's what you really think. Oh no, I'll tell uh, what I really think. 
and this is just my opinion, of course, based on my research, based on historical context, based on my experience as a, you know, as, as a Air Force officer. And, and Right. But uh, it's also based on all of the classified information that is in your brain. Which is yeah, is, yeah. Well, what 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 bits I I know and have been exposed to that comes with that experience as a military officer that I'm talking about, and as an OSI agent, my honest personal opinion is the scenario that I laid out. I personally think at this time mm -hmm. that Roswell was indeed our first attempt at manned spaceflight, and it was a very secret classified hush hush project. I truly think that what's in the book is what I truly think Roswell was. And I do not and have not. I've long not been convinced that it was anything to do with extraterrestrials. Do you remember when I messaged you and asked you if we could talk because I had seen something on television. Now, the, the name of it is escaping me. It was a new three-part series about Jesse Marcel, the mm -hmm. officer who I think was first on the scene. Mm -hmm. and found the wreckage and the material that was kind of like aluminum foil that if you crumpled it up, it would spring back to being uncrumpled. There was a three-part television weird. series about it. I think it was narrated by, is that the one that was narrated by Lawrence Fishburne? Uh, it it might have been because Fishburne was doing that about the time that he was coming out in in the a, a new series i think was about roswell correct um i'm not sure but uh yeah might have been those witnesses though the the family of of jesse marcel mm -hmm. were seemed to be to me convinced that these were visitors from outer space and they even used those words yeah so where did that idea come from? And you're saying, are you saying that that narrative that these were aliens from outer space and flying a flying saucer and it crashed, it was better for the public to think it was that than for the public to know the truth that it was a secret space program, really? Uh, and if so, then this outrage that people have, that it's being kept from us, it was for a reason. If it was indeed a secret space program, and they would just as soon let the public think it was aliens, there was a good reason for that, right? Yes. To, to answer your question, uh, uh, yes, that's exactly what I think Um happened and and that's why i think that they would have uh, allowed people to think that now remember um it, it was uh you know colonel hot i believe who put out the uh, press release that a disc had been captured and i think in there is where you see the clue and the evidence that um, the people involved with the program started to lay the spin of it being some flying saucer from another world. I, I think that was a spin that was laid on it by the Air Force and um, encouraged um, subsequently to that. Well, that's um, what the, ori yeah, the original headline read 
flying saucer, a flying disc had crashed. The headline of the paper, but if you go back and look at uh, teletypes and you go back to early reports and stuff, they, they, they weren't saying that. They were talking about debris and stuff. And then at some point, this, this, uh, this narrative, this flying saucer from another world extraterrestrial narrative gets injected into it. And, you know, that just, it built like a snowball over the years and the decades. And, you know, hey, why not let them think that's what it is? You know, that works for us. Yeah. And the bodies and the coffins, that was another thing that was on this. And that turned out, that turned out to be a lie that turned out to be from a source who is highly questionable, who admitted to making up, um, you know, a, a complete witness that he swore was this real woman, this nurse. And, you know, his story changed. And uh, if you if you take a look at um, uh, there's a book by a gentleman, Carl Flock. He's no longer with us. He passed away in 06. He came out with this book in 04. And, and he's not very well liked by, you know, the ET crowd in the UFO community of course, but um, in in uh, a book he did on Roswell, um, y- you learn how a, a lot of the lore has fallen apart because the alleged witnesses, you know, were either not telling the truth or they were grossly misremembering or misidentifying things. And the whole ET narrative really had fallen apart by the early 2000s. And even Kevin Randall has, you know, looked critically at it you know, his own research and some of the things he found um, with it. But um, this critical analysis that, you know, really broke down the lore uh, naturally gets ignored by the, the the folks who either have a stake in the ET hypothesis or just choose to uh, to believe in it. But uh, a lot of the things people point to, uh, you know, like, you know, no offense to uh, Colonel Marcel, but, you know, um, it's not likely that that Colonel Marcel, Major Marcel then was read in on this secret space program thing. So naturally, you know, he's going to be allowed to think what he wants and told part of the spin narrative. And that that in those days, you know, and, and even now, you know, if you don't have a need to know, that's just the way it is um, in, in that world. So it it's it, it's not that Marcel is making stuff up. I, I think you know, he might have been misremembering some things or exaggerating, you know, some some other things. But if he um, uh, handled and saw um, debris, you know, alleged debris or debris that was of a technology that, you know, to his 1947 experience was something that just was not something we had, he might assume it was otherworldly and was allowed to continue to right. believe it was otherworldly. So you, you have to consider all that. And um, it, the ET hypothesis, when you give it an honest look and you, and you look at um, the research and investigations, honest researchers have done, it, it, the ET hypothesis for Roswell breaks down pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, my, my last question on this is mm-hmm. about the debris mm-hmm. and the alleged debris, arts parts, metallic frog skin. <laughs> what are people coming across in these debris fields in New Mexico and specifically the donation site? The idea that anybody um, in the last 10 years, the last 20 years, the last 50 years mm-hmm. is really going to find any debris 
from I and I would venture back to the, within the first year after whatever crash there mm-hmm. that they're going to find debris that had anything to do with Roswell is is just ridiculous and it's playing to the wishful thinking of a particular demographic in the UFO community. It does it, seem it, strange that if something extraterrestrial crashed on U.S. soil, that seventy plus years later. It would still be sitting there. Exactly. It, it's that. I find that, that very, very, very difficult to believe. Yeah. And, um, but, you know, uh, people, you know, they want to spend the money to be taken on a tour out there and they want to read this stuff. And they, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's the most popular narrative, you know, on Roswell and was for decades. And, you know, as I said, about 15 years ago or so, when it began to seriously fall apart, you know, that they just didn't want to hear that. And so to this day, um, you know, the, uh, the, the critical analysis of the ET hypothesis for Roswell um, either gets denied or, or you know, opposed. Um, so what they, could this material be that, that Linda Moulton Howe was in possession of? She sold it to TTSA. Uh, Whitley yeah. Streber possesses some of the material. It's not anything. My understanding is it has been analyzed and it's not anything that's otherworldly that, that apparently it's a very common, um, uh, a, what's the word for it? D- debris, so to speak, in something to do and not smelting, but it's just something that's very, you know, not otherworldly and that's being put even art you got to remember art bell mm-hmm. when he first was talking about this he didn't believe it was anything otherworldly you know and um I, it, it, I, but it's, linda and whitley do and i'm i uh, i'm curious as to why um well look i'll offer a possible opinion on that and that is look at the business they're in look at what you know their pursuit is their pursuit is to to prove you know that extraterrestrials exist and that they can they're involved in that they're involved in you know let's get disclosure and such so it might be that um that they're they're allowing their desires in that respect to you know maybe cloud their judgment with with wishful thinking about some things, but, some but aspects TTSA of it. But TSA was willing to spend thirty five thousand dollars. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people laughing about that that uh, they spent that okay. much money on something that I, I don't think she spent a dime getting or, or it it's you know. I, but look at some of the other things TTSA has done. You know, they they touted a Mylar birthday balloon children's birthday party balloon as the first you know ufo classified uh, photo that they released is that and right it ends so, up, so yes th- there's some people involved with ttsa that uh were part of our cia and sure uh, and and hal Putoff, who is a sort of hero of mine um mm-hmm. that so it, it, if if they're putting this story out then is it because they want the public to think that or do they really think it too i honestly don't know what they were thinking 
um, exactly when they put out the Mylar balloon uh, story, you know, the, the Mylar balloon, you know, alleged UFO, the cynical, uh, the, the cynical part of my mind wonders if that was something to discredit Tom DeLong. If you recall, at that time, Tom DeLong was the face of TTSA. But look who he brought on board. He brought on board, as you say, former CIA people, former national security people, you know, retired, a, a former uh, a deputy assistant secretary of defense, you know, and, and these kind of people. And um, after about the first year, um, DeLong kind of took a back seat as far as being the public face. And it's like, where is he now? He's like nowhere to be seen, at least as far as, you know, the public face of TTSA and Luis Elizondo and these former national security guys went to the forefront and they came to the forefront with a very, you know, a, a different narrative and presentation than what was being presented when DeLong was in the, in the forefront on this. So I wonder if it wasn't an attempt to do just that, move him to the background mm -hmm. so that they could bring up a narrative that they actually wanted to push it. I, I have long suspected that um, what I'm talking about here with this particular group of national security folks, including Elizondo and, and all of them um, is that this is a perception management um, uh, operation to um, it, it's perception management involving technology that we actually have. For instance, the alleged infamous Tic Tac video. I, from the beginning, thought that was some type of advanced uh, U.S. Navy technology uh, being tested. And yes, we will think test things on our own personnel to get the actual real human response. Um, if for the longest time, TTSA and all its fanatics believe that was something that we couldn't possibly have. It's, you know, from another world. And, and since then, um, you know, Navy technology has emerged that has been developed for years and years. Remember, the Tic Tech thing happened in 04, I think. Um, it, and it turns out that it very likely is U.S. defense technology that was being developed at okay. the time, just as several of us suspected. And I think that that's why these guys emerged as the, the, the big important team on TTSA. I personally think, in a nutshell, is that the, um, the National Security you know, Department of Defense, um, in a way, they used TTSA. They used along in TTSA to um, put forth, you know, what we're seeing from them. And it has to do with perception management. Basically, what do I mean by that? You know, have the public believe what they want, you know, if, if it's ET or, or what have you, but the, the intended target of the release of this technology and the showing off of this technology that, you know, the, it's being spun as UFOs to the public, but the intended target would be the militaries of foreign nations, primarily China you know, in, in Russia. And it's their way of saying to them, because they'll know it's not UFOs from another world. They'll, they'll know that it's our technology. So it's this game that gets played mm -hmm. on this um, subtextual level between our military and their military. You know, look what we've got, wink, wink. Our people think it's, you know, something from another world. But the Chinese and the Russians will know that that's just spin for the public. And so 
the U.S. government would be happy for the U.S. citizens to think that it's extraterrestrial. I think that works. I think that's something that they've done in the past. That's what I talked about when I was in Mirage Men. That's uh, based on what I learned while on active duty. That is my position, yes. Yes. And one question that I've had that no one has given me an adequate answer on is uh-huh. this whole thing about people in the UFO community wanting the United States government to come clean about the existence of extraterrestrials and extraterrestrial flying saucers, okay? Mm-hmm. Flying craft. Why has no other government on the planet come forth and admitted the existence? I personally think that that is the greatest evidence for my personal position, and that is because the those to be disclosed, these extraterrestrials, are the ones driving disclosure. I, I think they are the ones who, however they're doing it, whatever the agreement is, and and I and let's I want to be clear here. I have no problem with the idea that extraterrestrial civilizations exist. I have no okay. problem with the idea that they've come here in the past. I have no problem that they continue to come today. I have no problem with the concept that we are in contact with extraterrestrial civilizations. None of that changes my position on these other things. And when you look closely, you see why I, I say that. But I personally, because of what you just said, yeah. um, just because the U.S. government doesn't want to tell, you know, its people. OK. And and OK, we might have we might be able to influence and strong arm our allies into not saying anything either. But we have no control over whether the Chinese or the Russians would right. say anything about it. And they haven't either. So right. that indicates to me that if there are extraterrestrials to be disclosed, that it is the extraterrestrials themselves who are deciding when and if or or this could be an and or. The nature of our contact, the nature of what that extraterrestrial civilization is all about could have something to do with, you know, why they're not choosing to reveal themselves. But but I, th- I think it might be that the ones that all these people are screaming, Americans are screaming and stomping their feet to be disclosed, they themselves might not be, might not want to be disclosed. And, um, you know. That's pretty inconvenient. <laughs> inconvenient. I wonder if there is something parallel going on here that people are being visited by something, someone, whether it's physical mm-hmm. or in another dimension. Mm-hmm. Uh. And there are people that are seeing things in the sky that they can't explain. Mm-hmm. And the two are being linked to each other. And they're really not linked at all. Oh, I, I think there's some of that going on. Yeah. I, I think people are um, jumping to an ET conclusion or assumption uh, when they shouldn't. Uh, there, there's plenty of weirdness in our world and in, in our spectrum of reality. And uh, it, it, it's something that would seem 
in some ways so otherworldly that you can understand why some people would jump to the extraterrestrial conclusion. And maybe in some cases, these things, or let's say they're beings, let's say it's an intelligence, um, you know, they, they, they would want us, just like I say, the military would want us to think their technology is extraterrestrial. Maybe this intelligence, this otherworldly, it, you know, interdimensional, so to speak, would maybe it's easier for us to think of them as being, you know, people from other planets as well. Um, you know, it's convenient. It, it, it's a convenient thing that people just in our times in the last century have really embraced and want to believe in. So let them believe that. Let them believe that. Well, we do need to wrap up because we're coming on two hours here. And sure. That was that was one of my biggest questions is why hasn't any other government on this planet come forth admitting the existence of extraterrestrials? And like you said, maybe we can control our allies, but we certainly can't control our enemies. Right. Um, I was wondering, as we wrap up, if there was anything you would like to add. I would like to say um, real quickly that um, in the book, in Shimmering Light, I offer a case of an individual who, um, uh, who, who disappeared a couple of times for days, uh, military personnel, and then he would reappear. And it was a very strange story. Mm -hmm. And ultimately, he disappeared. And the story was no one knew what happened to him. Right. And that was years ago. And, and, and was he abducted to another world by these other beings? Well, wouldn't you know it, but about four or five months after I released Shimmering Light, a book was written, it, a book was published in which they had found the guy and they interviewed him in the book and he hadn't just disappeared mysteriously. He just left the military and went on with his life, just living, you know, an obscure life. And so I, when people read my book, they're going to read that episode and think, oh my gosh, what a great mystery, you know, well, turns out that no mystery there, you know, um, beyond what, which I think had to do with a counterintelligence operation, but okay. that's a whole other thing. But um, I just want to state that if, you know, when you read the book and you read that episode, it has been solved, um, but it was solved after I released my book and in future revisions of my book, I will include that. And but, do you want to say the name of the book that you just mentioned that came out about it? Uh, off the top of my head, I can't, I'll, I'll provide you with the title. Yeah, so if you I'll add it to it the show notes, a later. show note or something, but I want to say this, the yeah. book, when you read the book, you'll notice that by the end of it, um, just like I said, hey, I have no problem with the existence of extraterrestrials. You know, you bring up something which I also have no problem with because I, I think I well, I have had some experience with uh, uh, something that appears to fit within the lore of of this ancient race of beings. Yeah, um, that is one of the threads of all my books. And here it is, of course, um, you know, kind of within my dad's story. Mm -hmm. So the irony here is that <laughs> even though I think my dad's story was a false narrative uh -huh. laid in his subconscious through hypnosis and probably drugs as well for the purpose of, you know, operational security. Um, and even though there's reason to doubt the idea of the underground civilization and all that, this thread 
of these others. Okay. Um, I can't, at this point in time, I can't really deny that because mm-hmm. b- between the stuff I've written and, and some of the personal experiences I've had, either these others are there or there is somebody acting in a way that they're leaving their mark in terms of the lore of these legendary others, if that makes sense, a very human agency, you know, somebody, you know, if it's not these actual others, it's somebody who wants you to believe that it's the others. And I find that really interesting, particularly when that theme of these others turns up in my uh, in all my books, even if they don't seem connected through centuries. It, you know, in the stuff I cover goes back 500 years or more. And, and here is this thread of this group of others. And I end the book with really not knowing what to say about that. Right. So it's um, and that's where I'm at. I, I don't know what to tell you on that. It's I think my dad's story is what I think it is. And we've been talking about for the last couple of hours. But at, at the same time, there's there is something weird going on in our world and there 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 is somebody out there who 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 appears to be you know the others and i think that's a mystery that it it might be that it's the mystery of our of each one of us of our lifetimes it is that we're not supposed to know the answer until the end well i appreciate you sharing that and you know i'm with you on that uh, as far as your personal experience with a UFO, the listeners mm-hmm. are going to have to wait until your <laughs> your workshop at Contact in the Desert. I will be there virtually with Walter. Uh, it is June 25th through the 28th. You can go to contactinthedesert.com or you could just look through the show notes for this episode at speakingofyoung.com for links. And I look forward to hearing uh, you speak about that. Um, So as we wrap up, is there anything else? No, just um, thank you for having me on. I always enjoy talking with you about these things. And um, I just, I I appreciate uh, having the time to tell this story. Thank you so much for sharing all of it with us, Walter. And um, maybe we can have you back to talk about some of your other books because you've written a lot more on on a lot of uh, other subjects and that are equally as fascinating. So I look forward to that in the future. I do too. Please visit the website Speaking of Young, that's J-U-N-G, dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. This episode is also available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungi and Laura. You can also listen to this episode on your Amazon Echo device, simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. I'm Laura London, and you've been listening to a very special quarantine edition of Speaking of Jung.